the Carolina Weather Group. This is the Wednesday, August 14th, 2019 edition of our little weather get together. We're happy to have you. This is show number 288, and we are on with uh, Greg Carbon tonight. Uh, Greg is our guest. He works at the Weather Prediction Center. And if you're in the weather community, I'm sure you've heard Greg's uh, name float out there several times with his work with uh, the SPC and now the Weather Prediction Center. So we're happy to have Greg on with us tonight. Uh, this is a live broadcast. You can probably hear my dog barking right now in the background, but uh, we'd love for you to interact with us. Uh, you can do that many different ways. We are live streaming right now on Facebook Live, Periscope, YouTube, Twitch, and all those other streaming devices. So uh, we welcome your questions and comments. If you're listening on the podcast version, we'd love for you to chime in as well. Uh, we will let Greg kind of give out some information towards the end of the show. So if you have any questions directed towards him, you can get that information there. If you have any general weather questions about the Carolinas or anywhere, just tweet us as well, Carolina WX Group, and we'll be sure to get those answered. So we're happy to have you all tonight. Uh, we are starting a little bit late. We do want to say we had some uh, severe weather roll through the area. We are going to um, talk about that towards the end of the program tonight. And uh, it's been a really uh, crazy weather week in the Carolinas with some severe weather. So with that, I do want to bring in our guest, uh, Mr. Greg Carbon. Greg, welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're uh, happy to have you tonight. Well, thanks, Scotty. My pleasure. It's good to be here. I've heard about the Carolina Weather Group for a couple of years now. So uh, thanks for having me. We hope uh, it's all been good things. <laughs> we hope it's been good, but uh, it's a pleasure having you tonight. And Greg, uh, first time guest, so we always uh, kind of uh, pose this question to everyone uh, who's joining us for the first time. How, how did you catch the weather bug that, that we've all caught here in the, uh, the weather enterprise? Well, as you can tell uh, by so I've been around, uh, been around a while, but uh, it really starts for me with the, uh, with, well, with the 50th anniversary we celebrated this summer in the space program. So growing up in that era of uh, science and, and space exploration uh, got me keenly interested in, in science in general. So um, from a very early age, uh, I, I kind of gravitated toward uh, scientific subjects and uh, realized as I grew that it, that weather was one of those, right? I didn't know immediately that weather was really one of those. I was interested in space exploration and, and chemistry and, and biology and other forms of science. And uh, I had a good friend of the family that basically showed me that he was doing weather observations. This was up in New England. I grew up, I grew up in Vermont and, uh, and he was doing temperature observations and, and snowfall and and uh, once I realized, oh, this is very much like a, a scientific pursuit, uh, became interested in meteorology. And it was really the snow uh, that got me interested uh, in weather and the aspect of predictability with respect to heavy snow in, in New England in the uh, 70s and, and uh, late 70s was sort of, you know, that one out of three forecast big events would happen, maybe, if you were lucky. Uh, but the one that really, really... Uh, just solidified my interest was the uh, blizzard of uh, February 1978, uh, which just pummeled uh, northern New England and even down into Boston. You know, they're the famous pictures of Route 128 around Boston, just basically paralyzed with two feet of snow. We had about uh, two, two and a half feet in Vermont, and that brought the snow on the ground almost up to six feet. Um, and from that point on, it was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to try to predict this stuff. And 
decided to get my uh, undergraduate degree in, in uh, meteorology at Linden State College, which is in Vermont. Um, and that was convenient to have a state school with state tuition that I could get a degree in. And knew I wanted to go into operational meteorology, and that's uh, pretty much uh, where I've ended up. Uh, so really lucky to be able to pursue uh, my dream of, of studying weather and, and, uh, and experiencing weather and working with some of the best in the, in the business. Well, Greg, I'm not sure that we've ever had six feet of snow on the ground here in the Carolinas. I know we've been close four or five feet up, on, up in the mountains. Um, but so n nowadays that um, you're in the in NOAA and working with, um, you know, the SBC and WPC, can you kind of highlight all of the different roles that you've held um, with NOAA over the years? Sure. So I didn't get into the uh, the National Weather Service right out of school. I would would have liked to have done that, uh, but at the time there weren't a lot of openings when I when I was eligible to uh, to put in. And so I ended up actually taking my first job in meteorology uh, with a company called Fleet Weather, which I think is still in business. They, they do uh, broadcasting consulting work out of uh, Southeast New York. And I, I do uh, kind of con uh, attribute some of my success in the weather service to, to that early experience in the private sector, um, you know, kind of learning the ropes uh, in terms of customer service and, and also uh, work ethic. And, you know, it, it, it only lasted a few years, but it was, it was really a very important experience early on. Um, then I actually ended up uh, going back up to Vermont and working in, uh, in the private sector as a contractor to the FAA, uh, doing surface observations uh, just before the age of automated surface observations. So I think that's a lost art, um, the art of coding up uh, a weather observation. At the time, it was surface aviation observations. Now we know them as METAR. Um, but that wasn't really forecasting, right? That's kind of like going out, looking at the sky and, and, and uh, coming up with the, the, the code for, for cloud cover and precipitation. But it was still very interesting. Uh, and then finally, the weather service was hiring. And I, I always knew that I wanted to work in operational meteorology and I wanted to work for the weather service. So took a job uh, with the National Weather Service in, in Charlotte at the, at the weather service forecast office. And that was really the dream come true. I mean, that office, that was the best. That office had, had everything I needed to get started. The, the WSR-74C radar, um, always been interested in electronics and, and, and radio. I'm an uh, extra class ham radio operator. Uh, and, and so not only do I come down to Charlotte from, from New England and I'm driving the Billy Graham Parkway every day, but the amount of thunderstorm activity is, you know, multiple times what I've seen in, in New England. And so it, it was just wonderful having the afternoon just be like clockwork with those storms would go up over the foothills of the Appalachians and drift east and then die just before they get to you usually. But to be able to operate the radar there. Um, and learn about storm structure and, and, and the, uh, the concepts of, uh, of radar operations and then NOAA weather radio and, and work in Skywarn programs. I mean, it was like, you know, um, I, was, I, was in, I was in a great, happy place. And I was offered a transfer to, uh, to Wilmington, uh, which was another great opportunity because that was a network radar, 1957 era, you know, uh, big tube uh, console radio, uh, radar. But the interesting thing was at the same time, the WSR-88Ds were coming in 
And Wilmington was basically uh, what they called a spin-up office at the time. And they had the new uh, WSR-88D Doppler radar down on uh, Shalott, uh, right on Cape Fear, right on there. And I saw more interesting weather on that radar over the Gulf Stream and near the coast and because of the topography uh, than I think I've seen just about everywhere else. It took many years of living in the, in the plains to see weather as interesting as, as what I saw in Wilmington in just a couple of years. And also the ability to go from an analog radar the network 1957 era radar, and then just go to the next room and look at that same same storm uh, with the 88D was a really, I mean, there, there will not be another time like that, right? Where you can look at something from analog to digital. So that was another uh, wonderful experience. Uh, the boss of the office essentially was, uh, was a lead forecaster at Cells in Kansas City. And uh, when I saw an opening in Norman at, at the Storm Prediction Center, uh, I asked him about it and he said, well, if you really want to go to Norman, uh, he was happier in North Carolina than he would have been in Norman. Um, he said, I'll help you, you know, um, I'll help you get there. You've done a lot for the office here, so I can vouch for you. And I got, got a job at the storm prediction center, kind of an entry level job in Norman as they were transferring, uh, all the responsibilities from the federal office building in downtown Kansas city uh, to co-locate with the National Severe Storms Laboratory and the University of Oklahoma in Norman. And I spent 20 years uh, in Norman in various capacities, basically starting as an entry forecaster, moving my way up, um, landing the, the warning co coordination meteorologist job there at the Storm Prediction Center, which I still say is the coolest I'll say one of the coolest because now WPC has a WCM. So one of the coolest jobs you can have in the National Weather Service is the warning coordination meteorologist job uh, for the Storm Prediction Center. And uh, did that for um, it was about six years and then decided it was time to come back uh, east, be a little closer to aging parents. Uh, so the move to the east was somewhat strategic, uh, but also uh, continuing the interest in in operational meteorology by coming to work at the, the Weather Prediction Center. So 25 years with NOAA um, and about uh, well, another 10 or so uh, in the private sector uh, after getting out of school. And uh, yeah, it's it, it, looking back, it's been great and it continues to be very exciting and very challenging. Perfect. Perfect. So let's, let's go for a two-part question here. What does the Weather Prediction Center do and what exactly is your role in the WPC now? So the Weather Prediction Center is one of, um, I lost track here, but it, it's one of the national centers for environmental prediction. Uh, I'll list off the other ones. So we've got the Space Weather Prediction Center, which is located in Boulder, uh, Colorado, kind of probably not known as necessarily a sister center to say the, the National Hurricane Center or, or the Storm Prediction Center. Those are the two, two others. There's the Aviation Weather Center in, uh, in Kansas City. Um, and then all the other centers are essentially located here in College Park. So that includes the Weather Prediction Center, the Ocean Prediction Center, the Environmental Modeling Center, and then the NSEP uh, Central Operations, kind of the, the, the IT uh, structure for, for all the other national centers. Um, so we are essentially a national center of expertise uh, focused on precipitation, uh, quantitative precipitation forecasting, or QPF, if you're a meteorologist. Uh, 
specializing in in that, not only in the form of liquid, but also in the form of frozen uh, precipitation in the form of snow and ice. Um, also, uh, a longtime uh, center uh, specializing in medium range forecasting, basically looking out uh, seven days and uh, trying to trying to decipher you know what the uh, what both the guidance and the large scale pattern support for the for the forecast of the upcoming week. Uh, so a, a center devoted to that. Um, and then we do the uh, the, the prog, prog charts and uh, you know surface fronts. We do surface analysis. I actually worked the surface analysis desk on Sunday, um, which is one of everyone's favorite positions as a meteorologist. You're doing you know you're doing real analysis. You're trying to figure out well is that a front? What is that front? Is that a warm front? An occluded front? Where's the low? Where's the high? And we do that analysis over North America every three hours. So we're responsible for the official record. Uh, of the surface analysis over over um, North America, con over the continent, and then we combine that analysis with the Ocean Prediction Center and and the uh, the Hurricane Center does their analysis over the uh, Caribbean region. That's combined for what's called the unified surface analysis. So the Weather Prediction Center essentially does what's in its name, which is weather, um, uh, day in and day out. Uh, specializing in where we don't do necessarily the hazard forecasting in terms of extreme rainfall, we're compiling that information from other centers. So we're looking at the all the hazards from, from drought to flooding to severe to fire and combining that uh, on a national uh, picture for a common operating picture uh, and a common message with respect to hazards uh, out to seven days. It's, it's a lot of work. Um, I have, if I'm fully staffed, so I'm essentially the meteorologist in charge at, for the forecast operations branch with about uh, 34 meteorologists um, that I supervise, which is a lot. Um, and they're all great. Uh, they're fantastic, dedicated uh, public servants. And, you know, we're working 24 uh, seven shift work and, and they're doing a, a remarkable job and focused on weather. I mean, just like the Storm Prediction Center, these national centers really attract some of the best and the brightest in meteorology. And once they get on board, uh, a lot of them stay. We have many forecasters who have spent most, if not their entire career uh, at WPC. And Greg, you mentioned QPFs, the quantitative precipitation forecast. A lot of what goes into that um, tells us how much rainfall is going to occur in certain areas. And, and this is extremely helpful in many events that we've seen over the last several years and even before that. Um, I wanted to get into your excessive rainfall risk categories that you issue. And what, what exactly defines excessive rainfall? And then how do you define the categories that go with it? So the, um, the excessive rainfall outlook that you mentioned, uh, Shay, is is an outlook product similar to the Storm Prediction Center's uh, severe thunderstorm outlook or the what they call the uh, severe weather outlook uh, product. It covers a generally covers a 24 hour period uh, for the next day and then the day after tomorrow and then the day after that. Um, and what we're attempting to convey in that uh, that particular product is our confidence essentially in where rainfall will exceed flash flood guidance or flash flood threshold. So where we expect rainfall to occur with such intensity uh, and where the antecedent conditions support uh, rapid runoff, uh, what we call rapid onset uh, flooding. Now, I, I thought coming here to this, I've been to the Weather Prediction Center, I've been here now uh, a little over three years, 
And I thought coming from tornadoes to uh, flash flooding was going to be, oh, this is going to be great. You know, I can, we've, I've done tornadoes. I should be able to handle flash flooding. It is nowhere. <laughs> it's a different animal, right? It's just a different uh, um, atmospheric challenge. And it's very much unlike tornadoes, and, but then it has similarities as well. In other words, the, the conditions under which you can experience a flash flood can come about rather rapidly, similar to a tornado. Uh, but unlike a tornado, you need these antecedent conditions. You need, you need an environment, you know, either it's uh, saturated soil or it's a metro area or, or some antecedent condition to exist in order for that heavy rainfall uh, to, to be realized in terms of a flood. Uh, unlike tornadoes, which, you know, you don't really need necessarily any antecedent conditions. If you got the atmospheric conditions right, you could probably get a tornado in just about any uh, underlying antecedent, any kind of soil moisture, or doesn't matter. Tornado doesn't care, right? Um, but a flash flood does need certain things to be in place. So what we're trying to do is convey that confidence of a flash flood event. We do it very similar to the Storm Prediction Center's approach in that because there's so much uncertainty in these events, uh, you have to approach them using probability. Uh, and so we have to basically smear out the influence of a particular flash flood to more than just the point at which it occurs. Because if you were predicting for the points, you would have very low, low confidence. But if you're predicting for an area, you can have a little bit more confidence to say, this is the general area in which I think we will see you know, a scattering of flash flood events or numerous flash flood events or widespread uh, catastrophic flash flood event. Um, and those words essentially correspond to the different confidence levels or the probability or the coverage of the, of the events themselves. So the, the slight risk is relatively low probabilities, uh, under 20%, a moderate risk, uh, 20 to, to 50, and then a high risk over 50% probability that if you're in that high risk, you got better, you got around even or better than even odds of experiencing a flash flood within 25 miles of your location. Um, and again, the forecasters are looking at, at QPF, quantitative precipitation forecasts. They're looking at antecedent soil moisture conditions. They're evaluating the, the vulnerability perhaps of the underlying demographics, whether you're in a metro area or, or a, a particular basin that is uh, tends to flash flood. Um, mud or uh, debris flow uh, potential, you know, with respect to burn scars, uh, those all play a role when combined with precipitation in assessing the possibility of the, the risk of flash flooding. Very good. Yeah, you answered. I had a couple more follow-ups I was going to go, but you got right to it. You're talking about burn scars and, and uh, debris flows and, and those things. So you're, you're pretty well in tune with the land as it is in these regions. So that's, uh, that's fantastic. Um, Flipping to our next topic, I wanted to go ahead and bring that. If anybody else had anything they want to ask about the excessive rainfall risk categories, anybody from the panel? Okay. Um, winter weather products. Let's let's talk shop about that. Go ahead and um, just kind of explain what WPC does, what they offer for these products for folks that uh, as we as we start heading into the fall. Sure. Um, so I should back up a little bit here and talk about you know we were talking about the different centers for environmental prediction and and the purpose purpose of these centers essentially within NOAA is that you you bring together uh, the meteorologists and you you task them with focusing on uh, particularly challenging forecast problems whether that's precipitation winter weather or flash flooding or tornadoes right so 
we, we see that, you know, or hurricanes for that matter. So we see the national centers are kind of focused on these particularly, you know, challenging uh, uh, forecast cha- forecast issues that uh, that we have, and the reason that you can gain experience uh, in those areas is because you're tasked with that day in and day out over a really large area, right? The United States, and and so you're not confined necessarily uh, like like the forecast office is perhaps to just that area of responsibility, half a state or, you know, a a couple dozen counties, which is a a significant responsibility when you get down to warning mode and and, uh, supercell thunderstorms. But with respect to understanding the ingredients necessary for severe storms or flooding, you can apply the concepts of forecast meteorology uh, across a relatively large domain. And if you're tasked with that day in and day out over a large domain, you gain a level of experience perhaps that's greater, say, than, than, than someone that may not experience that kind of forecast challenge as often when they're focused on a smaller region. So these, these centers of expertise are, are important in terms of providing an overview, a big picture, but also insight uh, and knowledge that may not be available elsewhere and focusing that knowledge into products like the excessive rainfall outlook, mesoscale precipitation discussions, and winter weather. So with winter weather, uh, the, the the focus is again on on the on the synoptic scale, the, the pattern recognition for uh, for for winter storms and applying some of the latest guidance with respect to ensemble techniques in developing uh, probabilistic approaches to snowfall. And so we're working actually this coming winter on an experimental, what we call the winter storm outlook. Uh, Just like other outlooks is gonna look, you know, day one, two, and three, uh, various periods of time. And the forecast will be the probability that you will meet winter storm warning criteria at your location. So the idea behind this product is that it can, similar to the convective outlook and the excessive rainfall outlook, these should provide insight and some level of guidance and consistency to the rest of the weather service with respect to issuing watches, whether that be a winter storm watch or a flash flood watch or a tornado watch or a hurricane watch. So the outlook provides kind of the first glimpse at confidence with regard to these hazards. And so we're working on this winter storm outlook for this coming winter. And it's basically going to be threshold based because that's the way the weather service currently operates with respect to winter weather. Um, not, uh, not entirely sure, but in, in, uh, in the Piedmont of North Carolina, a uh, winter storm warning threshold might be something I'm guessing maybe four or five inches in 12 hours would be a winter storm warning. I I'd have to look at the map. Is it four? Yeah, I think it's four. Yeah. Yeah. So four inches of snow in 12 hours. What in, in three days from now, uh, what's the probability of that uh, that occurring uh, with a particular system? And we'll have essentially, the, you know, a, a 30, I think we're going 10, 30 and 50 percent probability. And you at the 30 percent probability, you probably want to start thinking about issuing a watch. Um, and certainly if you get up around 50 or 60, you might even go into warning mode for, for a winter storm, uh, even if you're two days out. So. So we're going to test this uh, this coming uh, winter, and we have what we call the winter weather desk, uh, but we also have a development branch where you've got research meteorologists working on ensemble techniques and snow liquid ratios um, and, and, and combining the QPF that's generated at WPC to come up with snowfall and, and ice forecasts for these winter storms. Um, really challenging, uh, and of course, 
the, the real challenge, I think, is, is the collaboration that needs to occur uh, between our center and the Greenville-Spartanburg office or the Raleigh office uh, with respect to getting on the same page uh, with respect to snowfall amounts, high-end amounts, low-end amounts, uh, confidence, and uh, whether we issue watches and warnings. Uh, that's up to the local office when it comes to winter weather. And we want to collaborate uh, and provide those offices and the rest of the weather enterprise uh, with the best information we can from from the experts that are they're looking at it at the at the weather prediction center. Very uh, good, Scotty. I think we had Blacksburg, Virginia, on when they were testing out their new product. Um, have you worked with them on that at all, Greg? Uh, what's their new product, Scotty? Do you remember what they were exactly they were doing at Blacksburg? They were coming out with a new storm warning. Yeah, they had. Uh, they were one of the test beds for the new enhanced hazardous weather outlook. Um, Oh, okay. programs that has been, um, I think, now installed. I think all of the East Coast may be participating now with, with those products. So uh, I, for one, really excited to hear about that. I, I didn't know the winter storm outlook was was coming down the pipeline, but um, I, I think that's uh, that's a, a great tool, especially, Greg, you, you forecasted here in the Carolinas before. It, winter weather's tough here in the Carolinas, so that, that's a great tool to uh, for, for us forecasters to be able to, to grab a hold of and, and know that there's some confidence that, that we could see something coming down in the next few days. So, and, and beyond that, not, not very far out is, uh, is another uh, application we're trying, which is the, what we're calling the winter storm severity index, uh, which essentially is a, a, you know, very much uh, like other outlook categories, slight, moderate, high uh, impact uh, from winter weather. So it takes into account actually population, it takes into account snow load, wind, temperature, and, uh, and we're trying to apply uh, ensemble techniques to this winter storm severity index um, and eventually combine the winter storm outlook with the winter storm severity index. So we can say, here's the probability that you will reach or exceed moderate risk category for winter storm impact. So not so much talking about uh, snowfall amount there, although that plays some role in it. But what do we? What can we say about the impact that this event will have? Uh, will it be long lasting? Will people be out of power for days, or will it be relatively uh, easy to recover from? Uh, so this impact scale is is where the we the weather service is going in this direction of trying to provide. Uh, information regarding uh, societal impacts in, in, in terms of weather. It is very challenging, uh, but we're, we're using this winter storm severity index as a, a test uh, going forward. Yeah, Greg, I want to jump in real quick and uh, you know, switch gears from the uh, winter side of things. You guys make a really cool product, you know, on the day three to seven outlooks that you, you guys put out. And you were talking earlier about, you know, synoptic patter, pattern recognition and, and using ensemble techniques to really try to get a handle of what's, you know, what the weather's going to be outside of five days. Can you talk a little bit about what goes into that, that three to seven day product that you guys put out? Yeah, thanks, Chris. I, that one is uh, relatively new to, to WPC. Uh, we took, uh, we transitioned the, uh, that what we're calling the hazards outlook, which was all already the hazards outlook, but it was being issued by the, the climate prediction center. I think I missed them in my, my roundup earlier. So there's another one. Uh, they're just downstairs and they're important. They do some great stuff with the, uh, the extended range, uh, you know, all the way out over the next year, essentially, um, which 
yeah, we could argue about you know the quality of the forecast, but they're doing it in a scientifically robust approach. Uh, it's just not easy to to predict that far out as far as the large scale temperature and precipitation patterns. But they were doing uh, they started this day uh, uh, three through seven hazards um, as sort of a compilation. Really, I don't think they weren't they weren't really applying uh, short term forecast or medium range forecast techniques. They were really compiling information from other centers. And, and because WPC has that role in the medium range, it we felt that it, there was a better home for it at WPC uh, than, than at the, the Climate Prediction Center. So we transitioned that over. Um, there are aspects of that hazards outlook that uh, we basically just re, re, repackage, and, uh, including drought, um, severe weather from SPC, um, I think the fire weather, uh, the river flooding, those are just repackaged on that map. We take what, what already exists from the centers of expertise and, and we just plot it. Uh, however, temperatures, uh, precipitation, um, winter weather, uh, potential for flooding, uh, those, are, those are categories that we inherited from the Climate Prediction Center, but where we specialize in forecasting in the, in the medium range. And so percentile rank information, I don't know if you go to the WPC page and you use forecast tools, you can go to, um, I think it's called the situational awareness display. Uh, basically, it's looking at long-term uh, deviations from uh, model climatology using the latest forecast from, uh, from the global forecast systems or the North American forecast system. Uh, so take the ensemble, take the mean of the ensemble. How does that differ from long-term climatology uh, when, you, when you go out in time? And give you some idea of whether you're dealing with something that's, you know, potentially extreme um, or, you know, an outlier event uh, that we need to pay attention to. So that's one method you can use uh, for that. Um, teleconnections, another long time tool that's used, you know, when the pattern starts to set up in a certain way in one part of the globe, how does that affect downstream weather in other parts of the globe? Uh, the climate forecast system model, I did a little bit of work with that before leaving uh, uh, SPC in terms of attempting to do a longer range uh, forecast for severe weather. Uh, it shows some skill, uh, but that drops off pretty significantly after about seven days. Um, and so we're, we're in that zone from five to seven days where if we're dealing with something significant, it probably is going to show up and we should probably get it at, uh, the message out that, you know, we're dealing with something different here that could have quite an impact. Uh, so, you know, the, we used to call that in, in severe weather and you call it another hazard forecasting, synoptically significant uh, events or synoptically evident events. Uh, they're going to, they should show up in the numerical model guidance may not be all in agreement as far as uh, how that how that evolves, but there's a signal for something big coming in the days ahead. And that's what that product is designed to uh, to convey. Yeah, that's a it's a great product. And, uh, you know, just looking at the, the verification over just seven day temperatures over the past 10 years, and, you know, there's been almost a, you know, three, four, three to four degree improvement across the board in verification. So, you know, whatever you guys are doing, you're doing the right things and, just, you know, just Hopefully, technology will enable everybody to, to just get even better with it. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable where you look where we've come from in you know the last couple of decades, and I think a lot of that is you know due to the uh, use of ensembles and probability forecasting uh, to the challenge. When I started out in meteorology, there was yeah there was you know, there were two basically the the uh, there was a spectral model, <laughs> and there was the limited fine mesh model. 
and you didn't really have much information to give you insight into atmospheric predictability. Uh, but now with, with ensemble modeling, you can say something about the predictability of the, of the regime you're in. Uh, and sometimes you just have to say, you know, this does not look like a scenario that we can be all that confident in. Um, you've got a lot of different solutions in the next, uh, say, five to seven days. But other regimes are very predictable. You know, large scale uh, regimes that set up like uh, the, essentially the heat, the heat dome over the central part of the country right now. Uh, or even the transition of that that large high amplitude ridge to more of a zonal pattern that we're seeing uh, this week, that was pretty evident about a week ago in a lot of the numerical model guidance. So ensemble forecasting has really proven its value in terms of improving the accuracy of forecasts out several days. Yeah, I wish uh, I wish most folks that really understood what goes into the ensemble forecast. You know, uh, the, the Euro puts out a 51 member ensemble and the GFS about half that, it, you know, that's 70, 70 possible solutions, but being able to recognize a pattern out of all of that and then put it, put it to paper. That's a, it, it's pretty, pretty awesome. The winter weather forecast ensemble that, that WPC uses for the short range is of, I think it's close to 50 members at this point. Greg, switching gears a little bit, we were talking about the, the uh, excessive rainfall outlook that you guys produce. Uh, over the past, I don't know, three, four, maybe five years now, we've really seen an uptick in tropical activity and an uptick in, in just heavy rain events in general. Uh, talk to us a little bit about getting prepared for tropical events. We see um, Ken Graham down at the Hurricane Center. They, they do a lot of Facebook Lives and getting information out. I even seen you guys doing a lot of updates and, uh, on the heavy rain possibilities with, with landfall and hurricanes. So uh, talk to us about maybe what's going on right now in your office as, as we get it ready to head into the peak of hurricane season. How do you guys go about approaching uh, uh, landfalling tropical systems and things like that? With a lot of trepidation. <laughs> uh, so one of WPC's uh, responsibilities is to, uh, to provide operational backup uh, for the National Hurricane Center in the event that they go down. Uh, I'm not sure how well known that is, but that is one of our responsibilities. And so we have a really close working relationship uh, with Miami and the forecasters there. I was on the phone this afternoon with, with some of them. Uh, we have a, a, about a hundred page uh, plan in terms of uh, what products we will, we will supply in the event that they, hopefully they won't go down. Although we, we tested some of this uh, a couple of years ago with uh, Irma. You know, if you remember correctly, I think about five days out, Irma was a bullseye to Miami at about maybe a category uh, four. And, and it was, it was looking like we would have to back up the national hurricane center uh, if they went, you know, uh, if they went down, that was a distinct possibility. So we actually moved a team up to College Park, and we actually took over some of the uh, uh, tropical cyclone advisories for uh, the storms that were out in the Atlantic at the time. So there's that, but there's also, as you mentioned, the heavy rain threat. And I think Ken uh, at the Hurricane Center and his staff are are doing a great job in, in understanding, you know, not only, you know, the challenges of, of intensifying uh, tropical cyclones, uh, as we saw with Michael last year, uh, but the track forecasts have improved uh, dramatically. And then again, we get back to impacts. Okay, so you can get the track right, and you can get the intensity right, and you can warn uh, for, for surge and, and uh, wind, 
But the inland rainfall threat is a significant threat to life and property uh, when, when a system moves in. As we saw with Irene, saw with Sandy, uh, Florence, Harvey, all these storms, devastating impact from rainfall. And so that is well recognized now, um, not only by the WPC, but by the National Hurricane Center and all meteorologists involved in public safety, that we need to, we need to message the rainfall risk. Um, and it does appear as if, uh, you know, just in the recent memory here, we have seen just unbelievable amounts of rainfall over just a very short period of time. And Florence and the Carolinas was uh, a remarkable example of that. It, what, what strikes me about these events is that, the, uh, again, because they're so significant, it's usually, they're usually well handled um, by, by numerical model guidance uh, because there's such a large perturbation on the atmosphere. You, you certainly hope the physics and the, the numerical models can handle that. Um, but it was really fascinating to watch the models generate precipitation amounts that were just astronomical, you know, 65 inches of rain in a couple of days. And you're thinking, is how, how can that be, right? <laughs> it just doesn't seem, doesn't seem possible because we haven't experienced it before. Um, and then this realization that, that that actually could happen, right? Uh, especially in the case of Harvey, uh, trying to message that and be, be firm and committed to a message uh, two or three days out to something that you've never experienced before is incredibly difficult to do. Um, and when you, you want to go back to tornado events, a very similar feeling came, came across all forecasters I worked with uh, with respect to the April 27th, 2011 tornado outbreak. We knew it was going to be bad. But none of us had ever experienced anything that bad. So it wasn't within our frame of reference to say 300 tornadoes or 300 deaths and, and you know, uh, hundreds of tornadoes. Maybe, you know, we knew it was bad, but, but not that bad. And the same with these, these flooding events. You, you know that they're potentially catastrophic, but you may also be dealing with something that you don't have a reference to historically. And that puts you in an area that's really challenging with respect to messaging. So coordinated messaging is important. Uh, being on the same page from the local office and the local emergency manager all the way up to the National Hurricane Center is incredibly important. And the reason it is is because of a thing called confirmation bias. If I'm sitting in eastern North Carolina and I think, you know, I'm hearing a story about a hurricane coming in a few days that's going to drop three, three feet of rain in two days and just be catastrophic and I need to leave. If there's another message out there that says, don't worry about it, it shouldn't be too bad because we've lived through these before. And it, it comes from even a quasi authoritative source and you don't want to move. That's the message that you're going to believe. Right. But if you can't find that message from any authoritative source, if everywhere you turn is essentially going three feet of rain is coming and you're going to be washed out, you need to leave. If you can't find any other alternative message to fit your to fit what you're you're hoping for, uh, it's probably more likely that you're going to move. Uh, at least we hope. <laughs> so coordinated messaging and uh, uh, key messages as well. We're working very closely with the Hurricane Center and other partners um, across the enterprise to come up with a set of key messages we can all agree to and we can all support and that will be echoed you know, over and over again uh, from a number of platforms. That, that's, that's some incredible stuff there. And uh, one last question, you brought up something that really uh, kind of perked my interest there. You said April 27, 2011, me being a tornado guy and, and you talking about tornadoes also before our show, 
you know, at, while you're at the Storms Prediction Center, what's maybe the, the one event that really sticks out in your head, uh, not just from a, from a, a forecaster standpoint, but also personal, you know, uh, can I walk us through maybe, maybe one of the tougher days that you've had to work and, and, and what it was like to, to have to walk in those shoes and make the decisions you had to make? So you'd think it would be 2011, and that's certainly one of them. It's, it's hard to pick one, um, but I'll tell you about um, May 3rd, 1999. Um, that was one of the <laughs> earlier, more tornadoes. Um, I hadn't been at the Storm Prediction Center. I think I'd been there maybe three, three or four years. Um, so I wasn't working uh, at the Outlook uh, or, or, um, or the Mesoscale Death. I think I might have been spinning up on the mesoscale or training on the mesoscale desk that day in Norman. I had a colleague there too, who was with the science branch, uh, very interested in chasing um, and, uh, and really bright, bright guy. But we were, we were um, struggling that day uh, to understand how, you know, how, how are things going to evolve? And when I look back now, it's like, we didn't have storm scale. We didn't have convection allowing models. We didn't have models that look like radar, right? Um, they were blobs and they were pretty crude. This is 1999. And it's, a, again, it just makes your head spin when you think how fast and how far we've come. Uh, but the storms develop uh, quickly and every storm is rotating. And uh, as we've seen before, uh, since uh, that time, uh, one of the storms that set up to the Southwest of Oklahoma city uh, became, became uh very intense and developed a tornado very quickly down around, if you know the area, uh, Chickasha, uh, Anadarko area. And that became essentially a stovepipe uh, tornado that tracked up um, along the, the turnpike between uh, 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 Lawton, Oklahoma, and Oklahoma City. And I was watching, I got home from work. Well, as I'm leaving work, my, my uh, colleague who's into storm chasing says, this is gonna be pretty bad. Um, and he was, uh, he was very accurate in that, that statement. So I had small children and I got home and I'm sitting watching the news coverage with the helicopter, essentially the helicopter video following the stovepipe tornado up north, northeast as it's plodding along. And the, the, the thought that comes to mind is that, you know, this supercell is in, is in a perfectly pristine environment to be that that extreme and that violent and and when you think about it the atmosphere thank goodness doesn't put those conditions together very often or for very long right because the purpose of the the, the tornado is essentially to to change that environment as quickly as it can because it's in an incredibly uh, uh, unstable regime but this particular storm was not going to change I mean it, it had already done you know the the the, the right-hand turn, it had fully formed, and it was moving along, and it apparently was not encountering any environment that was hostile to it that would, you know, cause it to, to weaken. Uh, and there was a moment, and about a, there was a moment of about a five-minute period of time when the sirens went off in Norman, and I wasn't quite sure whether the tornado had tracked across the, uh, the turnpike, which would mean it could be could be a problem for Norman, or whether it had remained on and just to the west of the turnpike, which means I, I would probably be okay in Norman, but but Moore or Oklahoma City was was definitely under the gun. And uh, I realized after about five minutes, and I had a, a five year old on my lap that was screaming because the tornado warning's going off, 
<laughs> it's like my wife said, what do we do? I'm like, hold on, let's find out where this is. And, and once I realized after about five minutes that it was going to track to the north of us, we're going to be OK. Um, and not long after that, my older son's like, let's go, let's chase it. You know, and I'm like, well, that is uh, that's not likely to 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 go well. <laughs> we're in the metro area. But we did get in the car and we drove to a point where we could see the the storm to the north. And at that moment, I was also listening to the AM radio station out of Oklahoma City. And they had a reporter who was following the tornado um, in the wake. And he was in tears. He was crying as he was reporting. And the thought that came to mind is the famous uh, video uh, audio you, you've probably all heard of the Hindenburg. And the Hindenburg exploded and went down. That, that reporter is just emotionally overcome by the destruction he's witnessing. And that's what I thought of at the time. But I also saw this supercell in front of me that was you know, twice the height of Mount Everest. It's over 50,000 feet. It's got this back edge to it. I couldn't see the tornado, but I could see the base. And, and this thing is... Uh, is just remarkable and, and incredibly destructive at the same time. And that day just stands out as a day where a lot of things sort of came together uh, for me as a meteorologist and, uh, and, and, and the challenges we face in terms of trying to figure out, you know, what's going to happen when faced with a tornado forecast at 8 a.m. in the morning. What if somebody asks you, well, what about my city or my house at 5 p.m. this afternoon? We still don't have the science to do that. Um, and that day just, uh, that's, that's one of the ones that stands out. I, I definitely can understand that. You said May 3rd, 99, that definitely got my attention because I mean, that, that should stand out to anybody that's got a little bit of weather, weather weenie inside of them. But, uh, yeah, I mean, 8,000 homes were destroyed in that tornado and only 36 people lost their lives. So, you know, you guys obviously did something really great that day. And, uh, you know, it could have been much, much worse, you know, especially, you know, looking at the population, especially up the Bailey Turnpike from Lawton all the way into Norman, and OKC, Dell City, that whole area. It's just there's a lot of people out there. We were just out there a couple months ago. Mm -hmm. You know, it should just be thankful. You know, listen to warning. Yep. Greg, going back, you, you were talking about about that event uh, a little bit before that your first job, as you were talking about a little bit earlier was at the National Weather Service office in Charlotte, North Carolina. So some folks who are listening tonight may have not realized that Charlotte did have an office. Uh, so talk to us a, a little bit about that. Do you remember the forecast, the, the counties that you covered? Uh, kind of talk to us a little bit about your time in Charlotte and also Wilmington. Yeah, fond memories of Charlotte. Um, big change, uh, you know, kind of a culture shock coming to the South from, from New England. Uh, but, you know, first job and really excited to, to, to do well with the National Weather Service. So I think our county warning area may have extended west to Rutherford County and then east to Union and then maybe north, uh, not really sure, Anson perhaps and south. I think we had uh, down through Rock Hill. We didn't go too far into South Carolina, but we had, had one or two counties down there. Um, so so a you know, a significant uh, area for dangerous weather. And in fact, I showed up there on station well, just a few years after Hurricane Hugo, uh, which was well remembered by everybody I talked to in the area because Hugo came roaring up through there from after landfall in Charleston and did a tremendous amount of damage uh, in the Charlotte metro area. Um, but the real the real thing there was, uh, well, of course, winter weather, probably one of the more um, uh, 
remarkable events was, you know, a trace of freezing rain one morning. <laughs> Just, you know, total devastation, cars everywhere, traffic uh, standstill and, uh, and the airport shut down. But uh, but like I said earlier, it was the, it was being able to watch the storms develop in the afternoon off the high terrain to the west and the foothills and the Appalachian Mountains and then drift east. Um, oh, I, heard, I remember uh, the remnants of tropical tropical storm barrel too, uh, where every every little shower was spinning like a top, and the tornado you know reports were flying out from Hickory all over the place. Um, you know, not a lot of widespread damage, but there were a, a large number of tornadoes with barrel. And I could, you know, we were we were issuing warnings, you know, by running to the NOAA weather radio at the time. And that was uh, that was a lot of uh, a lot of chaos for for one evening. Um, the office, I thought, was very well run. The the uh, the uh, official in charge, not a meteorologist, but our official in charge was Ron Kuhn. I think there are a few folks who probably remember him well. Um, and he ran that office uh, kind of like a, a military base, you know, you, you, you had to, you had to do it right, or he was going to be on your case. Um, and he had a funny, funny test for the radar. He would go in uh, to get you qualified for radar. He would go in and he'd mess up all of the buttons and all of the inputs and just mess the radar up. And you would have to go back in there and get it back online within five minutes to get to meet his, his test. And, uh, Knowing radar, I mean, I was just, that's what I was living for. I mean, I knew the radar manual. I knew how the radar operated and he did it. And he's like, all right, go in there. And I went in and, you know, maybe a minute or two minute and a half. I had it back up and running. He's, I come out, it's all set. He's like, you couldn't have done it that fast. There's no way. No, you, you could not. It's not working. You probably didn't pass. He goes back in and he, oh, all right, it's running. <laughs> so I felt pretty good about that. Um. Two, two follow-ups. Uh, we are actually going to do a, a 30th anniversary Hugo show. So I want to ask you, you know, I know you wasn't here in 89, but uh, any stories that floated around in the weather office about Hugo? And then also, I'm not as sure ex the exact date you, you joined the Charlotte office, but 1993 around here in the Carolinas was also known for the uh, the blizzard of 93, the superstorm of 93, uh, the big snow event. Any recollection of that as well? Okay, so here's I, I, I came down in May of 93 to Charlotte. So I was in Vermont for the superstorm, which was just another storm up there. It was just another snowstorm. Um, and I got down there, I think the summer of 93, of course, was the summer of major floods across the Midwest. And, and I think the Piedmont was baking in a heat wave uh, during that summer. Um, so I just missed the, the blizzard, the, you know, the storm of the century there in, in March of 93, which I know basically from Alabama to, uh, to the mid-Atlantic was a big deal. Up in New England, it was just another snowstorm. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, uh, so the heat of that summer stands out to me. And, uh, and oh, and then the uh, Palm Sunday tornado outbreak stands out. I was there for that. Uh, I worked a midnight shift and I went home and I told my wife, uh, if the sun comes out, we're dead. <laughs> it's not going to be pretty. And uh, the sun came out and we were hiding in the closet later that afternoon. Um, in regards to Hugo, like uh, I know 89, you weren't here, but any, 
you know, th- this is the benchmark. The, the blizzard of 93 and Hugo is kind of the benchmark for the Carolinas, especially the western half. Um, in, in the weather office, I mean, did, did any of the forecasters tell you stories of, of being there? Or you, anything that kind of really sticks out about Hugo to you uh, coming into a, an office that just experienced that a few years earlier? You know, I, I, I do remember a few conversations. Um, I do remember that there were a few folks that had uh, had lost power and the power was out for a considerable amount of time. I, I remember some, some stories there. Um, uh, for me, I think what's remarkable about Hugo, and I was obsessed with it, I was watching it the whole time, was the CNN report from John Zarella in the eye in Charleston. He actually got the satellite back up and he was doing a live report. Um, I think it was, you know, late night, middle of the night when the eye went over Charleston and he was able to get a report out. Um, if you can find that video, uh, that, that, that to me is quite memorable. Um, but yeah, as far as the stories go, the, just the widespread damage that they had had there and, uh, the length of time some people went without power. Uh, I, I heard some stories about that. Well, Greg, we have certainly enjoyed having you on tonight, and I, I feel like I'm going to have to ask you to come back on, and we can just talk about different storms that uh, that's kind of piqued your interest. It has been a fantastic conversation, and uh, we're very uh, appreciative of your time tonight. If uh, our followers want to follow uh, you uh, on social media or the Weather Prediction Center, what you guys are doing, how can they do that? So the Weather Prediction Center is uh, uh, at NWS uh, WPC. Um, I'm at G, that's and George or Greg Carbon, at G Carbon on Twitter. Um, I know we were going to cover social media, but we probably run out of time on that one. But, uh, but that's where I am uh, occasionally. Tried to back off a little bit on that because it is so time consuming. Um, but uh, those are the two... Uh, uh, handles for uh, for Twitter, and of course, uh, Weather Prediction Center also has a Facebook page, and of course, the web page. I would recommend the web page. Um, there's just just like SPC. I mean, there's a lot of links there that just you can keep looking at weather information until the cows come home, and uh, and I will t- keep talking weather until the cows come home too. So, <laughs> be glad to come back. Um, you get me talking about weather, it's, it, it just doesn't stop. So, uh, so we'll have to have another show, but thank you very much for having me today. Challenge accepted. We're going to, we're going to bring you back. We'll social, we'll hit social media, uh, stick around for just a minute. We're getting ready to wrap up. I quickly, uh, want to toss it over to Shay right quick, uh, to do a quick tropical update. And then James is going to finish it out with some weather news and, uh, Greg, we want to keep you around for after the show for just a second. If you don't, okay. you've got a few minutes. Sure. All right, Shay, off to you, buddy. All right. Thank you very much, Scotty. Yeah. We're talking tropics right now. It's been pretty quiet in the Atlantic basin so far um, for, for the last couple of weeks or so. And a lot of that has to do with just a lot of upper shear across the Atlantic basin. Um, atmospherically not conducive for development. We had a, a couple of tropical waves. One thought we might get a name uh, Chantal, but then that fizzled out before it made it to the leeward islands. Um, so we have very warm sea surface temperatures, but we have a lot of dry air aloft. We have Saharan dust aloft across a wide spread across the equatorial Atlantic. So a lot of factors are just not, the ingredients are just not there yet, but we do want to caution that El Nino has now ended, uh, in the Pacific. And, and what that means is that the, um, pattern for the Atlantic basin tends to go up a little bit. The upper shear relaxes a little bit. So Noah went up on their numbers a little bit to just above normal. 
And, and so that report went out on August the 8th when they officially ended El Nino and upped their numbers just a little bit for, for major hurricanes and, and other tropical cyclones as well. So just be aware, even though it's quiet right now, as we get towards the middle of August, that the, we are getting into the more active season. I'm going to go ahead and talk a little bit about El Nino. Let me know when you can see the screen. Either way, what you see here is um, the El Nino regions. And so largely what we have, we have, this is Equatorial Pacific Ocean. And Nino 3.4, this region is what's typically watched the most when, when the CPC is designating El Nino or La Nina conditions or even neutral conditions, which is what we're in now. Uh, so a lot of the majority of data is coming from this area right here. And if we look at the thermocline, this is the, the level, the depth of warm water across the equatorial Pacific. And we see right, right by 150 degrees west and over towards 140 is where El Nino 3.4 starts. And you see this cool water upwelling over here to the east. And so what we have is we have a very shallow layer of warm water. And that's been a, a, a fairly big trend. In fact, if we look at the CDOS Nino index, we see a sharp drop off here. And so in order to keep an El Nino active, it has to be about 0.5 degrees Celsius or higher for its anomalously warm values. And that's, you know, and it was barely hanging on here for, for some time, but now they've, they've gone ahead and said, look, the El Nino is over. It's officially done. We're in, we're in a neutral phase right now. Um, and that's expected to go on through winter of 2019 to 2020 with about a 50 to 55% chance. Here is uh, the red line here. You want to kind of look at this. This is the uh, dynamic average. Uh, of all of these. And so we kind of look at this line, looks like things are going to stay below that number and we'll stay in the neutral phase. And maybe a possibility sometime down the road of getting back up towards that 0.5, but nothing significant. There's nothing uh, really pointing out that we're going to, we're going to get back to El Nino anytime soon. Uh, if we look at the Atlantic basin, the wide view, here is the Saharan dust. And this is basically mid-level dust that's captured uh, it, cro it heads across the Atlantic Basin, across the atmosphere, about 500 millibars, or about 18,000 feet, give or take a few thousand. And uh, this, this really hampers development in the tropics. It, it doesn't allow a lot of uh, uh, vorticity to, to sustain itself or surface loads to develop because of the dry air aloft. And, and even though we get some impressive tropical waves off of Africa, this dust tends to kill it off. Now, we do have a little bit of a break coming in between these plumes. We call this the dusty tongue of the Sahara. And so we're watching the Caribbean right now, the Western Caribbean, uh, maybe a little bit of activity starting to show up on some of the models to maybe push up into the Gulf of Mexico by late next week. The signal is very weak for a even a tropical depression. GFS fell off, but just an area we're going to be watching. So these are the areas we need to be watching right now are the Gulf of Mexico, uh, the Western Caribbean, even along the Carolina coast and the Northern uh, Gulf of Mexico states where some of these homegrown systems can develop. And uh, I think that's going to wrap it up. So things are pretty quiet. I just want to give you kind of a, a synopsis of how the El Nino operates and, and what the, the numbers come from and uh, let you know that there really isn't a whole lot of activity out there. But we're looking at maybe a weak signal for next week. Let me uh, pull up one more thing here. And just, just a reminder, we're only here in this portion of the season. We're getting into the more active part of the season as September 10 peaks out. Uh, but even even in we get into October, we still see systems coming through here. So we're we're starting to get, see an uptick as we get through the end of next week. Things may start to unfold. We may see some more activity. Thanks, Shay. We want to take a look now in your recap of all things Carolina weather news this week. And we start just yesterday, where almost everyone in North Carolina at some point was underneath a severe thunderstorm warning. 
we had a line of storms roll in, multiple lines of storms technically roll on through. The biggest came in the late afternoon through the evening hours as it marched from the mountains to the east. We had reports of downed trees stretching along the I-40 corridor, Interstate 77, all the way from the greater Charlotte area to the Raleigh area saw this impact of storms come rolling on through. Here in the Charlotte area, one of the areas that jumps out most to me is in the Hickory area, the Lake Hickory area, where we had numerous trees come down, including one that fell on the home of a mother who had come in the door just moments before, grabbed her kid who was sleeping in a crib and got both of them to safety just as a tree came crashing down onto their home. And luckily, they are safe and sound. Not too far away in Morganton. Scotty, I understand you guys saw some of this heavy rain and wind and you even captured some of it on video. Yeah, James, it was a pretty um, volatile day weather-wise. Uh, we was I was experiencing you know hot humid conditions around lunchtime, uh, the sun out, and I knew with the thunderstorms coming in that uh, it could be uh, strong to severe. Uh, we got under that uh, severe thunderstorm watch around uh, two o'clock, and then about three thirty, uh, the uh, line of severe storms moved through the area. Sixty to seventy mile per hour wind gusts. Um, we had a lot of uh, damage up towards my pool, some pool furniture in the pool. Uh, we had some trees down, so a lot of uh, debris and, and stuff to pick up. Uh, but it was a quick moving storm. It only lasted about two, three minutes. Five, five, ten minutes later, the sun was already out. So overall, um, a lot of cleanup to do, but no injuries here. But it was a pretty intense storm. Uh, 60, 70 mile per hour winds uh, will definitely do some damage. Uh, luckily, no injuries that I'm aware of with yesterday's storms or today's storms. We've now updated our graphic on the screen. And for those of you listening at home to show you the weather that we saw today on Wednesday in the bullseye was in the Charleston area where we had numerous severe thunderstorm warnings. Some of them even tagged at points with the potential tornado possible as we were seeing some signs of rotation. Luckily, it doesn't seem like any of that came together, but we did still have numerous trees and power lines down here in the Charleston area. And uh, zooming on out, we did have a severe thunderstorm warning in the Orangeburg area. Again, a severe thunderstorm warning, meaning we're having winds of greater than 60 mile per hours or hail greater than the size of a quarter coin. Uh, and we even had some severe weather that rolled through and brought down some trees just south of the uh, Greenville Spartanburg area and if I'm not mistaken that was actually during the overnight hours when we had a line also come rolling through the Carolinas that maybe had woken you up in the middle of the night while you were sleeping all of this thanks in part to those very warm temperatures 90 plus degrees in some areas even crossing triple digits and that really is keeping the atmosphere Scotty really primed for thunderstorms back to you yeah, James, definitely so. As we uh, go throughout the end of this week into the weekend, we're going to see those temperatures come down just a little bit, and the humidity is going to creep down just a little bit as well before it ramps back up next week and the shower and thunderstorm chances come back. So uh, just a little bit of a break between the heat and humidity before more of it comes. But, hey, that's August here in the Carolinas. Uh, next week, we hope that you will join us. We have Jordan Girth on. He is a uh, satellite meteorologist at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. He's going to be talking to us about the 5G data that's going to be coming in to the area and how it may affect the weather models that we work with. So a great conversation, uh, something that you may have already caught in the news, but we're going to go more in detail and understand how it's going to affect us in the weather enterprise and how it may affect you getting your weather information. So uh, we hope to see you then. Until uh, next week, we hope you have a great weekend. Uh, stay cool out there, and if you experience any storm damage, we hope, uh, that you're able to quickly get that cleaned up and get back to some sort of normalcy. And uh, just enjoy the weekend, and we'll see you back here next Wednesday night for another episode of the Carolina Weather Group.
Hey, this is Tim Pounds, digital content editor for the Carolina Weather Group. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to check out our weekly live stream every Wednesday at 8.15 Eastern on all the major streaming applications such as Facebook, YouTube, Periscope, and Twitch, just to name a few. Additionally, be sure to check out our weekly podcasts that are published on all your favorite applications like Anchor.fm, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Apple Podcasts. Stay weather aware, drive hands-free, and have a wonderful day.